Now today in the psalm, speaking of rain, we read about uh, how the psalmist praised the Lord for visiting the earth and for greatly enriching the land with rain. And so if uh, maybe when it was raining this past week, if when it was raining, your small child asked you, why is it raining? Well, what would your answer have been? Would you have used it as an opportunity to talk about the water cycle? Or maybe if the child asked at an inopportune time, possibly as you're trying to wrestle them to get them in their coat, maybe, they, maybe you gave a very short and simple answer, but nonetheless a true answer. Maybe you said something like, because God wanted to water the plants today. Now, as a society accustomed to walking into supermarkets stocked full of produce, it's easy to take for granted our daily bread. Maybe you wonder, maybe some of you do wonder how the food got to your table, but maybe some of you don't, or at least not very often do you wonder that. Yet, produce does not fall from the sky. Farmers have to plant, water, and harvest. The produce needs to be washed, transported, and stocked. And of course, if you know someone who's part of that, uh, the food industry and who plays a part in getting food to your table, I know that I see a lot of farms here, so you might very well know somebody, it's, it would be a kind gesture, of course, to thank them for their work, because it's because of them that we get to eat each week. But when you sit down with your family to eat, the, eat your meal, and when you pray before that meal, who do you thank? I mean, do you thank the field worker? Do you think, thank the truck driver, the cashier? No. You thank your heavenly Father. And you thank him because no matter how many hands went into feeding you this past week, every blessing has come to you from your ever-loving heavenly Father. The farmers worked the fields, but God gave the growth. For the same reason, because God also grows his church, particularly by the power of his gospel in Christ, for this reason, give all glory to God alone. This will be the subject of our sermon today. And the sermon will be broken up into three main sections. Uh, The first section will be the Corinthian paradox. This will be a brief kind of uh, introduction. This will set the context a little bit. Um, since we're dropping into the middle of Paul's letter. So the, the Corinthian paradox, second point is do not glory in man, and the third point is glory in God. So the Corinthian para- paradox, do not glory in man, glory in God. And so first we'll consider the Corinthian paradox. As we began our New Testament text today, we might, you might have noticed that the first verse begins with the word, but... And this is because what Paul is about to say is somewhat in contrast with what he has been saying earlier in the letter. From the start of the letter, Paul reminds the Corinthians of who they are in Christ. In chapter 1, Paul says that they have been called to be saints, and they've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. It is the Corinthians who have by faith embraced the gospel and have been forgiven all their sins and granted everlasting life. In chapter 2, Paul calls the Corinthians both 
mature and spiritual. They are mature because they have received the wisdom of God. Now, the wisdom of God, that is, they received the gospel. They received the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what they received, and that's what's made them mature. Paul has made it clear that true wisdom is found at the cross of our crucified Lord. By embracing this good news that Jesus lived, died, was buried, and rose from the dead for sinners, by believing by faith alone in this, the Corinthians were mature. Paul, Paul also calls the Corinthians spiritual. They're spiritual because it was the Spirit of God who not only revealed the gospel to them, but who also caused them to embrace the gospel. And because the Spirit continues to indwell in the Corinthians, they have begun to be transformed by the work of the Spirit. You see, God's salvation in Christ, once hidden, has now been revealed, and the work of the Spirit has already begun to transform the Corinthians to be more like Christ in both their outlook and also in their behavior. And so they have all that they need to live a life that's characterized by Christian faith, hope, and love. But, but their lives are not apparently characterized this way. Today we witness the Corinthian paradox. You see, the Corinthians are true Christians, but they are thinking and behaving like unbelievers. The Corinthians are Christians who are engaging in very unchristian behavior. This paradox is not too unfamiliar to us today. Christians, though we know and believe the gospel, and though the Spirit of God does indwell us and is gradually making us more like Jesus, we often, sadly, at times, don't look all that different from the rest of the world. And this is the problem that Paul sees in the Corinthians and addresses in our passage. And so, having contextualized it, having reviewed, reviewed some of the earlier material from this letter, let's now move on to um, our next section, which is, do not glory in man. Let's begin this section by looking at verses one through four again. I'll read it again. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? I think you would agree it's rather embarrassing if someone has to tell you to act your age. Now, whatever your age, there tends to be an expectation of what sort of behavior is expected and acceptable. Uh, when you're a baby or a toddler, or sorry, when a baby or toddler uh, begins to cry loudly in the middle of our worship service, uh, well, it's understandable. All small children, and especially covenant children, are welcome here during the service, and if they get a little fussy or loud, well, I think we're all pretty understanding. 
Babies behave like babies, infants behave like infants, toddlers behave like toddlers, and so such distractions are tolerable, understandable, and even expected at times. But if one of you able-minded adults started wiggling around in your seat and wailing in the middle of the service, if, simply because you were hungry or because you wanted your toy, well, that sort of disruption would be less tolerable It'd be less understandable, and it would certainly be less expected. Uh, to be an adult entails having the responsibility to behave as an adult. Once you reach a certain age, certain behavior is simply no longer permissible. It's not acceptable. When growing up, uh, maybe as a, as a preteen or a teenager, if you were acting particularly childish in a moment, uh, your parent might have even said to you, if you're going to act like a child, I'm going to treat you like a child. If you're going to act like a baby, I'll treat you like a baby. And now, of course, in that situation, as a preteen or a teenager, you're no longer a baby, factually. Um, regardless of your behavior, you're not suddenly a baby. But you're a teenager behaving like a baby, right? You see, the Corinthians are not unspiritual. They do not lack the Spirit of God. Um, because the Spirit of God indwells them. Yet Paul tells them, as, um, or rather Paul addresses them, as if they were unspiritual. And that's because they're acting unspiritual. Paul goes on to effectively say, I can't even address you as spiritual people on account of your behavior. Your behavior itself is fleshly, not spiritual. Though you have the Spirit, you are walking according to the flesh. Though you are mature in Christ, you are behaving like infants, like babies. From the reassurance that Paul has front-loaded in this letter, Paul now shifts to what some might say a, a harsh rebuke. But you see, Paul's not engaging in unprovoked name-calling here. In other places, Paul is apt to use terminology that the Corinthians would have been familiar with, terminology that they themselves might have very well used. And terminology that they might have even been using against Paul. Earlier, Paul used the word mature, which would have referred to someone with perfected wisdom. This phrase some, refers to someone with perfected wisdom. And Paul uses it to tell the, tell the Corinthians that Christians, because Christians, um, because Christians have Christ, they have the perfected wisdom of God in Christ and him crucified. Paul has been driving home that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that perfected wisdom of God uh, that the Corinthians have already received, and there is no greater wisdom than this. Now, he may have done this because the Corinthians themselves were touting their own maturity. We're the ones that truly are truly mature. Now, it was common in their culture to use the metaphor of milk to refer to elementary, basic teachings. And also to use the, the metaphor of solid foods or meats to refer to deeper, higher truths or knowledge. And the Corinthians may have been effectively saying of Paul, Paul's teaching is good and all, but it's mere milk. We need more solid food. We must graduate from Paul's simple gospel to something more profound, something more useful. We need something more. The gospel was nice when we were new believers, but we need more. And this is not uncommon in our own churches today. 
People today even abandon churches that faithfully preach the gospel to settle for less gospel-centered churches because they're looking for something better, or so they think. Yeah, the gospel is preached, but what I really need is more politics on Sunday morning. Yeah, the gospel is preached, but what I really need is better music. Yeah, the gospel is preached, but I need more pop psychology and how-tos. Or, yeah, the gospel is preached, but I need more sophisticated and thought-provoking sermons. Yeah, the gospel is preached, but you can fill in the rest. Now, these are common, common thoughts in, in the church today. And even for those who are gospel-minded, um, who, who understand the importance of the gospel, it's easy to subtly and gradually leave the gospel behind. Now, despite the Corinthians' high opinion of their own maturity, Paul points out that their behavior is evidence to the contrary. Instead of acting like mature adults, they are behaving like little babies. They think they have progressed beyond the gospel, but their behavior proves that though they have believed the gospel, their lives, well, they, it's, their lives seem unaffected by it. Therefore, Paul effectively says, you're right. The simple gospel I preached when I first came to you was indeed milk. At the time when you were infants, I gave you the milk you needed. But even now, by, the, by your strife and jealousy, it is evident to me that you are still infants in need of milk. You still need to hear the gospel. Because you continue to behave like babies, I will continue to give you the milk that you need. That is, the gospel. What the Corinthians also do not realize is that you can't progress beyond the gospel. If the Corinthians were truly mature, as they likely were suggesting they were, they would recognize that the same gospel that, was, that they regarded as milk was actually truly solid food. The difference between food for the infantile and food for the mature is not a difference in doctrine or substance. You do not graduate to more profound wisdom. The wisdom of God for infants and adults is the same. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel is milk, if there is a difference. It may well be something as the simple summary found in the Apostles' Creed. And the gospel of solid food may well be the gospel explained in all its complexity and its grandeur. But the gospel is the same in substance for both infants and mature adults. Nobody graduates beyond the gospel because all, gospel, all progress beyond the gospel is actually regression into childishness. But how exactly are the Corinthians behaving, being childish? In what way are they acting like babies? Well, they were acting not as Christians transformed by the gospel, transformed by the Spirit, but as people who were ruled by their flesh. To behave only in a human way, as Paul charges the Corinthians uh, of doing, this really means to act according to your sinful human nature. So they were guilty of jealousies and rivalries, Paul says. But what exactly were they fighting over? What is causing these divisions in the Corinthian church? And for this answer, let's continue reading through the letter, verses 5 and 6. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, 
Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. In the city of Corinth and in Greco-Roman culture at large, as one commentator puts it, competitive showmanship was the order of the day. Competitive showmanship. And so just as loyal students would affiliate themselves with particular secular teachers and would compete for, uh, these teachers would compete for applause, the Corinthian church divided in their loyalties. They divided in their loyalties over their favorite church leaders, whether it be Peter, Paul, or Apollos. The church leaders themselves were not competing with with one another. After all, they they were teaching the exact same doctrines, the exact same thing. They were united. But the church members chose to competitively quarrel over their favorite teachers, specifically based on style and preference, because after all, they regarded superficial displays of eloquence and sophistication as being true measures of power and wisdom. And this is not uncommon in our church today. There, of course, is nothing wrong with having preferences of of preaching styles per se, but to jeopardize the unity of the church over that? After all, what cult personality is worth splitting the church over? The Corinthians think they are so great just because they sat under Paul's teaching. Now, I think you and I would both, you know, agree. We would probably take that opportunity to sit under Paul if given it. But the Corinthians thought, if I could just touch the hem of Paul, some of his glory might rub off on me. And so when they did touch Paul's hem, they, uh, they looked down on everybody else, thinking that they were better. But Paul challenges this cult of personality by asking a simple question, by asking, what is Paul? Now, he doesn't say who. He asks, what is Paul? What is Apollos? And like a catechism, Paul answers his own question. What are Apollos and Paul? Answer, servants, mere servants. To Greek ears, the word for servants refers to those who would perform tasks of an unskilled nature. Um, Those of a low social status is what that word might have brought to mind. And in, um, so what Paul is doing is he's actually comparing church leaders to field workers in his day. They are those who were, um, who would have been slaves a lot of the time, who would perform manual labor, just as, um, and so he's comparing church leaders to those who work menial jobs. And this has great rhetorical thrust, I might add. Uh, Paul is saying, you think you're affiliating with certain church leaders and that affiliation makes you great? You think you're dining with kings by affiliating with Paul, Apollos, or Peter, when in fact, you have associated yourselves with the lowest of the low. To boast in men is to boast in lowly farm laborers, Paul is saying. Now, of course, there's, there's nothing wrong with actual farm laborers. They're necessary for us to put food on the table, which is why we remarked earlier. Um, and in a similar way, officers in the church are needed for their labors, 
But you see Paul's point. In this case, to glory in lowly servants and not the Lord who assigns them their tasks is a misplacement of praise. That's his point. Paul is intent on not only correcting the Corinthians' view of their leaders, but he intends to replace their misplaced loyalties, to replace their loyalties with devotion to God alone. Do not glory in human teachers who are lowly field workers, but glory in the Lord of the field who gives the growth. And this brings us to our final point, which is glory in God. Let's now read verses 6 and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There have been various movements in history when workers have felt abused by their superiors. Some workers will look around and notice that they are doing all of the hard work, all of the hard physical manual labor, while to them, it seems, the boss is just hanging out in the air-conditioned office, uh, seemingly doing very little, um, while the majority of the profits go to his pocket. Now, to be clear, I'm not making any comment about those situations, but you can at least see why the, that train of thought is appealing to some people. After all, why should the aloof landowner make all the money when those who are in the trenches doing the heavy lifting get so little? The servants are those who are doing the real labor anyhow. Now, whatever can be said about those situations, that doesn't apply here. You see, God is no absentee landlord. If there is any real heavy lifting to do, God alone does it. In fact, Paul, uh, from Paul, you get the sense that the servants are not even necessary. By comparison, Apollos and Paul are nothing, he says. Now, of course, Christ himself called Paul to be his servant. Officers in the church are indeed needed, but they're needed because God has said so. God regulates his church the way he chooses, and he has called servants to plant and water, but ultimately, their work is dependent on him. And this is because all their work is made possible, effectual, and enduring because of God. If it was not for God, nothing any servant did would be of any value. Nothing they did would even be possible. And even then, neither Paul or Apollos nor anyone can cause the blind to see and cause sinners to embrace the gospel. It is only God that can produce genuine spiritual growth. Just as Apollos preached to the established church in Corinth so too farmers water their seeds and plants in the field. But the labors of both preachers and farmers are at the mercy of someone else. In one sense, farmers do not directly cause seeds to germinate and grow. Now, of course, you and I know that if you plant the seed in the right soil and water it the appropriate amount, you can ordinarily expect the seed to germinate and to grow. Yet all the farmers all that farmers can do is plant and water. That's all they can do. But in the dark, beneath the ground, whether all conditions are met and sustained to produce germination is ultimately a work of God's. 
the work of his providence and his sovereignty and his created order. From the germination of the seed to its growing tall, strong, and fruitful, ultimately, God alone gives the growth. From the germination of that seed in the soul of a person's heart to its flourishing into spiritual maturity and producing the fruit of the Spirit, God alone gives that growth. Now much is made today of techniques for growing your church. There are many bells and whistles and programs to build your church. And they work. They work to attract large crowds and to get people through those doors. But church growth isn't merely about packing your sanctuaries from wall to wall. That growth can be manufactured. The growth that counts for anything is when sinners are cut to the heart, cut to the heart by God's law, and then healed by the love of God found in Christ Jesus and his holy gospel. The servants of God are called to proclaim salvation for all who would place their faith alone in Jesus Christ. But ultimately, only God saves. You who have placed your faith in Christ and who place your faith in him today have been made his treasured possession. You have been added to his church, added to his beloved garden. And so let's read the final two verses. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. As far as status is concerned, all of God's servants are one. Neither are Paul or Apollos responsible for the growth. Neither are they anything compared to God. Neither are they, um, or rather, they are fellow workers with one another. And so in this sense, neither is preferred to the other. Now, this doesn't discredit their different roles, of course. The differences between offices, such as elders and deacons, is important. That's not obliterated here. But it is to say that under God, no officer is of a higher status than another, and they all serve the same Lord. And it is the Lord also who judges these servants. You see, the mention of Wages for labor might, for some of you, might even conjure some questions about rewards in heaven. By laboring in the ministry, do officers in the church earn rewards and is, that God is obligated to distribute for their hard work? And by extension, do these wages apply to everyone else? Should you and I make wise investments now by giving to the poor so that we may have more treasures in heaven? What's the going rate for inviting your friend to church? Now, first, it might be prudent when considering this question to turn to our Heidelberg Catechism, which asks the question, um, how can our good works be said to merit or earn nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? The answer is, that the Catechism gives, this reward is not merited or earned, it is a gift of grace. Any rewards given to you, me, or the officers of the church are not given to us because we have placed God in our debts. You see, Jesus himself says, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Sinners saved by grace do not earn anything 
by their good works. We offer our good works to God out of thanks for what he has done for us, that we do not put God in our debt. Yet because God is gracious, he has opted to reward us, though according to what Christ has earned for us and on the basis of his sovereign grace. And now all, now, all metaphors or, or illustrations fall short at some point, but maybe to illustrate this, it might be helpful to imagine a father and his son. The father tells his son to clean his room. And to honor his father and obey the fifth commandment, the son ought to rightfully clean his room, as he was told. And the father and son, uh, now the father and son, they don't have any employee-employer contractual arrangement between them. The father is not obligated to pay his son for cleaning his own room, right? But because the father is gracious and loves his son, he may well decide to reward his son for his obedience by buying him, let's say, ice cream. Now, the father did not need to reward his son with a treat, but the father graciously chose to do so out of love for his son. So too, all rewards which Christ earned for us are distributed by God according to his grace and his good pleasure. It would also be a mistake to try to determine some calculus and some, or, uh, some correlation between our obedience now and future rewards. You see, God blesses whom he pleases as he pleases. And the reason why the ESV translates the word wages, though it may also be translated rewards, is simply because it fits the metaphor we see in our passage, the metaphor of field workers hired by a landowner. It's not meant to imply any contractual obligation on God's part to pay them. God alone judges the value of his servant's labor. And this is exactly Paul's point. The Corinthians are in no place to be divisively judging the labors of, his, of God's workers. Only God is permitted to judge the quality of God's field workers. And God will distribute his wages as he sees fit. And that is because the church leaders belong to God. And so do the Corinthians. Paul reminds the Corinthians of who they are in Christ. You see, identity in the ancient world would commonly come down to who do you belong to? Whose property are you? And here, Paul proclaims God's com comprehensive ownership. He owns the workers, and he owns the field. The field in which God's servants labor is God's beloved church. The church is God's beloved garden. He carefully watches over it and assigns workers to tend to its every need. God not only watches over the garden, though, he also sustains it. And he will continue to sustain it in Christ by his spirit until the day of judgment when Jesus returns. But not only is the church God's garden that he tends and causes to grow, the church is a building we read in our passage. Now, the type of building Paul has in mind, and we'll talk about in the same chapter, that building is the temple of God. Now, this might seem like a jump in metaphors. Paul switches from agricultural imagery now to architectural imagery. 
A church is a garden and she's a temple. And is, so the question might be asked, well, is Paul merely employing a new metaphor here? And the answer to that is, well, probably not. It's probably not a brand new metaphor. You see, the Garden of Eden was itself a temple of God. Adam was ordered to work and keep the Garden of God just as the Levitical priests were ordered to work and keep the temple. Even the prophet Ezekiel calls Eden the holy mountain of God, much like Zion, and the holy mountain, uh, Zion is the holy mountain on which Solomon's temple stood. It was there in the Garden of Eden where God walked amongst his people and made his presence manifest. And even when the temple is built, God orders the temple to contain imagery from Eden. Angels and, and garden imagery, such as fruits, palm trees, flowers, and they decorate the temple. But now, in the new covenant, God's sanctuary does not reside within the bounds of a garden. Nor is the church called to gather around an earthly Jerusalem. God has chosen a different place to reside in this age. He's chosen you. Though we call this room the sanctuary, this mere building is not God's sanctuary. You are God's sanctuary. You are God's holy temple. The temple garden in which God moves today is his beloved church. But how is it that, a holy, that the holy maker of heaven and earth, the God who is pure light, how is it that he makes sinners his holy residence? Does he not know how broken the church is today? Does he not realize the sins that are in my heart? How can the Spirit possibly be so near when I feel so far gone at times? God does know. But he does not see you as a sinner any longer. You who have faith have been counted holy and righteous today because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even now, though sin does still remain in this life, God is not yet done with you. You see, God is no absentee landlord. God, by his spirit, is personally involved in building and sustaining and preserving his church until the day of Jesus Christ. And he will continue to build, sustain, and preserve you in Christ forevermore. In this pilgrim life, the garden of God has weeds still. The temple of God is not yet complete. But at the day of Jesus Christ, you, the bride of Christ, the temple garden of God will be cleansed of every spot and blemish and arrayed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In light of this present reality and that future hope, your Lord, through Paul, exhorts you today not to bicker and to fight and to divide over mere men, but as God's holy temple, 
be united in Christ, and give all glory to God alone. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshiping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.